So we are working our way through the Gospel of John. Last week, we concluded Jesus' public teaching ministry. And to summarize a little bit, John acknowledged that a majority of Israelites did not accept Jesus' claims during his public ministry. And his explanation for that is that you should not think that God or Jesus is too weak to reach such people. Um, He argues that their rejection of Jesus is a decision they make subject to God's divine decree and the mysterious process we call as divine hardening, which Israelites had experienced in the past, such as in Isaiah's generation, when there was just what we would call a righteous remnant and the majority were not following God. Now uh, we're going to jump forward to the Last Supper, and it's kind of interesting to compare the different accounts of Jesus' final week. There's lots of interesting stuff, particularly in Matthew and Luke, that happens during that week, interactions between Jesus and the crowd, or Jesus and the leaders in the temple area, that John just skips over. Conversely, there's stuff John talks about that none of the other gospel writers do. And I think what we're going to see um, this week in particular is that John's focus is really relational. And the reason I think he chooses to present the stuff he does is he really focuses on explaining the relational nature of the Trinity, so the Holy Spirit, God the Father, and Jesus, and how those relationships work, and the relational aspects of faith and following Jesus. And we're going to see that emphasis start now with the Last Supper. So picking up in 13.1, it was just before the Passover feast... So we think this is now after, just after sundown on Nisan 15, which is what we would call Thursday night. Um, So they've gotten their lamb from the temple, and they're ready to celebrate the traditional Jewish Passover meal. Jesus knew the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. So we talked last week about how he knows suffering's coming, but along with that, after the suffering, he's going to leave this world and return to heaven. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. Or your translation may say, he loved them to the end. I actually like to the end um, a little better. I think the point John is making is more that Jesus has loved the disciples looking backwards into the past throughout their ministry together, and he is about to demonstrate his love to the end. And if you remember what John says Jesus' final words on the cross are, it is finished, these words are related in Greek. And so you get this tie, like from now to Jesus' last breath, he loves his disciples, 
which is kind of amazing because we're going to see the disciples all sort of fall away to one degree or another. Um, And yet Jesus loves them and continues to demonstrate his love in immensely difficult circumstances. So that's kind of an introduction to what's going to follow, not just, I think, the Last Supper, but also Jesus' final discourse. Then we start the episode he's about to start now, which is part of that. The evening meal was being served. The devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. So one fact John wants us to have in mind as we think about this scene is that Judas is already working on his decision to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So another fact John wants you to have in mind is how high Jesus' status is. He came from heaven. He's going back to heaven. God the Father has given him authority over everything else in the universe. That's Jesus' status. So, knowing all those things, what does Jesus do? He got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, which would be a very undignified thing to do, wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And one of the things... John would expect his original audience to know that we don't know because this isn't part of our culture, is that foot washing is one of the most menial tasks in that culture. And so there's even extra biblical commentary that suggests that a wealthy Jew would not require even a Jewish slave to do this. So it was reserved for the most menial slaves. Um, Certainly not something that someone of equal status would do for someone else. Definitely not something someone of higher status does for lower status in that culture. So imagine this scene. You've got the 12 disciples, and they're watching as this person they view as their rabbi and leader put on the garb of a slave, and one by one washing their feet. And it must have been horribly awkward because everything they know culturally is telling them this is wrong. This is not the way it should be. And there are 12 people, so it would have gone on and on and on. Um, You know, there's certain moments when time seems to stretch, right? And I'm sure this is one of those awkward moments where they don't know what to do because it's wrong, but they also view Jesus as higher status than him, so it's not really appropriate for them to stop Jesus either. So how do we stop this awkwardness? And as so often happens, it's Simon Peter who says something, And he's going to kind of show up um, in different ways, some of which are not flattering in the verses that go on from here. And I don't think John's goal is to make Peter the bad guy or to make him look bad. I think often 
Peter's just the representative who says what everyone else is thinking, but they're not willing to say it. And this is one of those times. So he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And it's really a rhetorical question. The expected answer is no, far be it. That shouldn't happen. May it never be, as Paul might say. You know, that's not the way it should be. And Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. So Jesus is going to say a lot of things um, throughout the rest of the gospel that were really cryptic when he said them, and that was probably annoying to the disciples, but he's right. Later they will figure this out. And so one level of meaning that I don't think they get uh, that's definitely going on here is that what Jesus is doing is meant to symbolize the great redeeming grace he's going to provide on the cross. So one level of meaning you're to get from this is that washing the feet symbolizes the redeeming grace that washes your sins away and justifies you in Jesus and God the Father's eyes, and Jesus provides that on the cross. And they don't get that yet, but they'll put that together later. So Peter says, no, you shall never wash my feet. So Peter escalates, says, you may wash the other guy's feet, but you're not going to wash my feet because I know that's wrong, right? Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. And the little phrase, no part, could be interpreted as inheritance or share. That little phrase shows up again in Revelation at the end. So let's see. So like at Revelation 26, if you want to jump over there real quick. Twenty verse six. So blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. And then twenty two nineteen. And if anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. So that's same terminology. So Jesus is saying, hey, if you want to be part of my kingdom, if you want to be one of my followers, you must let me wash your feet. This is not optional, Peter. Okay. And I think one of the lessons we're to take away from that is that um, following Jesus requires humility. Uh, There is, I think, a natural tendency to think, hey, I bring something to the table here. And Peter brought more than most. We know he's a really gifted leader, powerful individual. Um, And Jesus says, no, Peter, this isn't what you bring to the table. You have to, you're dependent on me. And if I don't wash your feet, 
you can't be part of my kingdom. And so that requires humility to say, hey, I need Jesus. I am dependent on him. And that is a sort of humility that we all have to have as his followers. We all have to be willing to say that. And I think part of what the Last Supper is designed to do is it's one thing to say in the abstract, yes, I need Jesus' redeeming grace, the grace he provides on the cross. It's another thing to sit there and let him wash your feet while he's dressed as a slave. And so we've talked in the past about how there's some ways I think it's easier for us to believe some of the things Jesus says with a distance of 2,000 years. Um, There are other ways that I think the disciples have an advantage, and this is one way they would have had an advantage. They would have felt the awkwardness, the humiliation, and they would have remembered the feeling of Jesus washing their feet and then been able to connect that to the cross in a way that we can. I think one of the things we have because we weren't able to be at the Last Supper, I think is baptism and communion. If you think about those signs we were given, they aren't just things we recite. They're things that involve other senses. And this is one of the reasons why I like baptism by immersion, although I don't think there's a verse that says you have to do it that way. But when you get dunked in the water, you feel it. And you remember it. And I think it's given to you as a sign of the washing you get from the cross. And so we didn't get to be at the Last Supper, but we can experience baptism and feel that water and have a memory of that and of how it symbolizes the redemption we get. And communion the same way. It involves taste. It's an action that we do together. And I think those things are designed to help us realize The spiritual realm is real, and this would have done that for the disciples who are there. So Peter then flips and says, Then, Lord, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. So, okay, if I have to let you wash my feet like the other guys, then wash my hands and feet. Again, kind of special treatment. I'm not just a regular disciple. I'm like commando disciple. Jesus answered, and we aren't sure how to translate this, a person who had a bath needs only to wash his feet, his whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. So some texts don't have the little phrase, um, only wash his feet. But the basic point is someone who's had a shower in our kind of cultural lingo and then goes out and walks around, doesn't need a full shower, he just needs to wash his feet. The the point is, you will be clean if you let me do what I'm doing for all the other disciples, which is wash your feet. And I think this is another kind of level of humility that's required, is that the same salvation for me is the one you get, and Billy Graham, and Peter, and everyone else. There is a sense of equality in our shared dependence on Christ and the redemption he provides. And that's intended to cut across all sorts of cultural barriers. So if you look 
at Galatians, for example. Jump over to Galatians 3. One of the takeaways from this Starting in 26 of chapter 3, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. So some of the major social barriers of his day. For you are all one in Christ. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So sharers in the inheritance. So there's an inherent equality in our shared dependence on Christ. And even Peter, who's going to become one of the premier leaders of the church, can't change that by doing something extra to get justification. The way he gets it, the same anyone else. All right, And then we get the little phrase, not every one of you, and John tells us that's because Jesus knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. So as we think about divine hardening, one of the things that's interesting to think about is Judas gets his feet washed too. So Judas is getting extended every courtesy Um, that the other disciples are, even though Jesus knows exactly what Judas is going to do. So we're going to see Jesus shows kindness to his enemy Judas up into the very end as well. All right, questions, comments so far? Yeah, in the back. Yeah, so I think when you apply this to sanctification, you know, we're still walking around in the earth kicking up a lot of dust, and so our feet continue to get dirty. And so um, confession is not something you stop the moment you come to faith. It's something you practice the rest of your life, and I think John talks about that in his epistles, um, that we still have, even though we're justified There is this process of sanctification that includes continuing to sin, confessing those sins, hopefully deepening your relationship with God as life continues. Anything else? All right, so let's keep going. Now we're kind of going to get into the second layer of meaning. So when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, 
you should also wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. And so what he's saying is that, you know, this situation felt all wrong to you because culturally you have been taught through your experience in the world that the person of higher status does not wash the feet of lower status. I am telling you in my kingdom, the rules are different. And in my kingdom, the greater washes the feet of the lesser. And you guys are going to be leaders in my church after I'm gone. And you need to get that you are not given that position to use for your advantage. You are given that position to serve people. And so never think ministry task is too menial for you. Because you've just seen what I did for you. And so now you have to go out and do that for other believers. And so the rules are different in Jesus' kingdom, and we, for each other, are supposed to always be willing to wash each other's feet. We are never to say, oh, I'm too good for that. You know, I'm too important to fill coffee pots or whatever. doesn't matter. Um, We should never think... Um, I'm too dignified for that. If they understood how skilled these hands are, they wouldn't ask me to do that. Do any, do any of y'all ever watch uh, Black-ish? There's a, the, the wife in Black-ish is a surgeon, and there's an episode that starts with her deciding her kids are too privileged, so they need to learn how to serve. So she goes to this soup kitchen, and they're all going to serve there, And I can't remember what they want her to do. It's something where, like, she's by herself peeling potatoes or something like that. And she's like, these hands are too skilled for that. And she discovers that she's the one that has the barrier with serving and her kids kind of take to it right away. And I think it is very easy for us to think, hey, you know, if people understood who I am, they wouldn't be asking me to do this. And Jesus says, nope, that's world thinking. God's thinking and what God likes is people who use whatever ability, authority, status they have to benefit others, and now you have to do this, okay? So part of being a follower of Jesus is unlearning what we've unwittingly learned from the world that we liked and that Jesus says is wrong and you have to discard if you want to be godly. Questions, comments, concerns about that? Yeah. Yeah, I think... So I think that's tricky. So I do think you should never think you're too good for a certain ministry, and that's why you shouldn't do it. On the other hand, if you read passages in the epistles about the body and how a church is like a body that has specialized organs, it would be kind of dumb to pluck out your eye 
and use it as a shoe, right? Um, so I do think there's something to figuring out where you're most gifted and serving in that area of giftedness. But even there, what you're doing is you're serving for others' benefits. And I think where the church gets in trouble, and I'll pick on people with the gift of leadership, it's most frequently leaders thinking that they have the position of leadership to abuse other people. And so, like, if you think about the worst scandals in the church, it's usually leaders using their position to abuse others, either financially or in other ways. And so, almost any position of service can also be abused if you start thinking of that position as a way to benefit yourself. Like in the Gospels, we have the example of Judas. He was told to carry the money bag around. We find out at the end, it turned out, he was taking some of that money for himself. But at the same time, I think you're right. Um, There are times when we kind of need all hands on deck, whether it's moving chairs or whatever. No one should say, I'm too good for that ministry. But... So I don't think you should be afraid to minister in areas that are your weakness, but I also think God gave you gifts for a reason, and you ought to look for ministries that use your gifts too. So there's a bit of a balance there. Anything else? Yeah. Well, we're certainly told to be forgiving of one another in the epistles. And I think you can look at all the one another's as a form of service to each other. So I think being willing to extend grace to each other and forgive one another is something we're to do. Um, One of the tricky things about a passage like this is that there are certain things Jesus does that we can't do. And so one of the things Jesus does that no one else can do is provide the basis for forgiveness, justification. Um, So he isn't expecting us to emulate that, but what we can emulate is the heart of service And one of the ways believers do serve each other is by extending grace to each other for their imperfections. So I think any of the one another's, bearing each other's weaknesses, loving each other, forgiving one another, encouraging one another, can be thought of as a form of foot washing. Anything else? All right, so let's keep going. He then says, I am not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen. And I think here, because earlier in the gospel, he said that um, he chose the 12. The emphasis in this particular phrase is that he knows the 12. And so he knows which of the 12 who he chose are the ones that are faithful and the one who's not, okay? And he says, this is to fulfill a scripture. He who shares my bread 
has lifted up his heel against me. And this is one of those typological fulfillments. If you go back to Psalm 41, that's what he seems to be alluding to. We think Psalm 41 is a psalm of David, so we think David's the author. We think this was written during a period of illness he had. And in Psalm 41, one of the things he's going to talk about is that that was a moment of weakness for him because he seems to have been incapacitated. And there are certain people that took advantage of that weakness. We would say they kicked him while he was down, right? So if you pick up in verse 7, all my enemies whisper, against, whisper together against me. They imagine the worst for me, saying, a vile disease has beset him. He will never get up from the place where he lies. Even my close friend, whom I trusted, he who shared my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Well, what in the world does it mean to lift up his heel against me? So the commentators think this is an idiomatic phrase like raining cats and dogs, where knowing the definition of the individual words doesn't help you understand what it means. And it seems to mean to cause like a surprise attack that's unexpected, deals a great blow. Maybe it stems from the idea of tripping someone, sticking your foot out and unexpectedly tripping them. I don't know, but it means a great blow. And so what David is saying is while I was down, someone I thought I could count on attacked me. It was a betrayal. But then he goes on. But you, O Lord, have mercy on me. Raise me up that I may repay them. I know that you are pleased with me, for my enemy does not triumph over me. In my integrity, you uphold me and set me in your presence forever. So incredible similarities to what's about to transpire between Judas and Jesus. Jesus knows Judas is going to betray him, but he also knows that God the Father is going to exalt Jesus and not allow Satan and Judas to have the real victory. Okay? So I don't think David knew all that when he wrote the psalm, but the gospel writers very much believe the Holy Spirit did, and we might say these are Easter eggs, like some people that really get in a TV show, they look for Easter eggs in the TV show, and they read the internet to find out, well, what was hidden in this episode? Well, the gospel writers look back at these things that fit Jesus' life, and they say these are divine Easter eggs that Jesus fulfilled, and these are signs the Holy Spirit gave to us to persuade us that Jesus really is who he claimed he was. Right. Questions, comments, concerns about that? Yeah. I could be wrong, but I think the heel, the heel, raising your heel mm -hmm. up thing could be a reference to uh, when you're bowing to someone in the olden days, like on one knee, you were supposed to lay your other foot completely flat on the ground because if you had it arched or your heel up, you would be able to totally just spring at the king and launch yourself in 
So you're supposed to put your foot down? Which would be kind of a surprise attack. Yeah, I, don't, I could be wrong, but that's what I thought of immediately when I say that. Cool. I didn't know anything about the flat foot thing, so that's interesting. Anyone else? So I think this is one of the instances where we have to say Jesus is different than me. And this was really unique circumstances. um, Because part of what Jesus and John are doing is showing that Jesus knew all this so that you understand Jesus wasn't caught unawares. He could have stopped the situation if he'd wanted to, but he chose in submission to God the Father to let it play out the way it did. I think we need to say, um, and one way this has really been hammered home to me, is by being a judge on a specialty court and working with addicts, is I don't know who's actually going to turn and take to treatment and conquer their addiction. I've learned they all say when they're trying to avoid prison that they will. I've learned most of them don't the first time. Some of them do the first time. Some of them do after they've been through treatment multiple times, and I am really bad at predicting it. So what I think we can take from Jesus' model is that it's not our place in this phase to punish people. Our place is to offer them, here's the right behavior, Here's the behavior that will be rewarded, and wait and see. And I think Jesus provides a good model of that and how he treats Judas kindly, even though he knows Judas is not going to actually follow through. So, you know, there's a passage in the Gospels where Jesus tells the disciples when they're going on a mission, be shrewd as snakes, innocent as doves, or something like that. And I think that's, I think the attitude we're to have, which is to know that when you are sharing the gospel with someone, they could very well reject it. They could reject it in a way that's mean to you. Um, So be shrewd in that sense, that when we try to help people, it may not turn out well, but be innocent in the sense of optimistic because we don't know what the Holy Spirit's going to do. Um, And very often people who seem to be heading one direction irretrievably turn. So we've got a couple examples coming up. You know, the thief on the cross 
who probably his whole life seemed to be headed in the wrong direction, turns at the last second. And then after him, we have Paul, who seems to be heading in the direction of opposition to Jesus as hard as he can, and then suddenly turns. But I think Jesus knew with Judas. All right. And this is why I think it's important to John. Jesus says, I'm telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. And I think Jesus is very consciously using the phrase, I am he, um, to indicate his divinity. This is a Trinitarian statement, brings um, to mind the incident in Exodus where Moses meets God, also sounds like passages in Isaiah that um, would make it Trinitarian. And his point is that I'm telling you this so that you would understand it's another sign. I tell you the truth. Whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me. Whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. The second part of that statement's not unusual in John. It's very uh, repeated common thing for Jesus to say, if you accept me and my claims, that's the equivalent of accepting God the Father who sent me. What I think is new and even more amazing to me is Jesus says to the disciples, anyone I sin, I tell you the truth, whoever accepts anyone I sin accepts me. So Jesus is telling what will be these 11 fallible guys that even though you are not going to be a perfect representation of me, the way I am a perfect representation of the characteristics of God the Father, if people accept the message you deliver, that's equivalent to accepting me. And so I think this gets passed on through the centuries to you guys, the current crop of followers of Jesus. And Jesus is saying, if you share the gospel with them, as fallible as you are, and someone accepts what you are saying, that's equivalent to them accepting Jesus. And it's kind of amazing to me that Jesus is willing to go off and leave his witness in the hands of people like us. That's kind of one of the amazing things of Christianity, um, is that we are trusted with this message, and God knows full well how imperfectly we're going to carry that out, and he still trusts us with it. I think that's kind of amazing. All right. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. So he makes it crystal clear now when I said someone is going to betray me, I mean it's one of you, and it is going to be a betrayal. The disciples still don't have it figured out who it is. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. So the traditional understanding of the disciple whom Jesus loved is that's John, and he's referring to himself this way because he doesn't want you to focus on him as the author of the gospel, so he keeps himself anonymous. Has anyone ever heard a suggestion that it's not John? 
So the most popular alternate theory is that it's Lazarus. And so you'll find some scholars that will argue disciple whom Jesus loved is Lazarus. And the reason they argue that is that it's crystal clear in the gospel that Lazarus is someone Jesus loved. John says it a lot earlier. But you know what he also says a lot is Lazarus' name. Lazarus, Lazarus, Lazarus. Why would he suddenly switch to the disciple whom Jesus loved and stop saying Lazarus? That's, to me, one of the big problems with the theory. So I, I tend to think the traditional guys have it right. This is John. Another reason to think that is if you look at the places where the disciple whom Jesus loved, that phrase is specifically mentioned, it's at the cross, it's at the empty tomb, it's by the Sea of Tiberias after the resurrection, and in that episode we actually have a list of disciples who were there, and it includes the sons of Zebedee, one of whom is John, so we know John's actually there. Lazarus isn't mentioned at being at any of those, nor is he really mentioned as being at the Last Supper. The other thing is that eventually the gospel clearly says the disciple whom Jesus loved is the author of this gospel, and there's no indication that Lazarus traveled with Jesus throughout his ministry and would have been in position to write this gospel. So I'm very comfortable thinking of John as a disciple whom Jesus loved. I think John would be horrified if we thought that meant John saying he was loved more than any other disciple. One reason I say that is throughout his gospel, John has talked about how Jesus loved other disciples, and he loved Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. Eventually in the epistles, he's going to talk about how Jesus loves all disciples. I, so why would he use that phrase? My rank speculation, I have no proof of this, is that I think John thinks the most important fact about him is that Jesus loved him. And he doesn't want you to read this gospel thinking of John and Jesus as the object of your faith. He wants you to think of Jesus as the object of your faith. And the most important fact about you is that Jesus loves you. And what are you going to do with that? And so I think that's the strategy behind that. I can't prove that. All right. So anyway, what we think is going on is that in an Eastern-style dinner like this, they're probably reclining and reaching out onto the table with one hand laying on the other elbow. It looks like John is next to him. Peter's not. So Peter kind of motions to John, hey, figure out who this traitor is. So he's gesturing, trying to get John to do that. So Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? So picture John kind of leaning back, so who is it? (laughs) Trying to be all subtle about it. Jesus said, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. So another connection back to Psalm 41 that we just looked at. And this suggests 
Judas is actually on the other side in what would have been the place of honor at the Last Supper. So the problem we all have is we've got Leonardo da Vinci in our head, right? Guys at a table in a big, long line. That's probably not what this is. This is probably 12 people around a table, John on one side, Judas on the other. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. Now we know Satan has already prompted Judas to act, so this isn't the first time Satan's trying to influence Judas, but this probably means Satan takes possession of Judas in a stronger way at this moment, and this moment is a tipping point in the plot to betray Jesus. And Jesus says, what you are about to do, do quickly. So I think John records that to show again Jesus is in control of the situation. Instead of stopping Judas, Jesus actually directs Judas and Satan, go ahead and do it and do it quickly. It's time. Let's get it over with. Now is the time. So this raises an interesting question. Why doesn't John raise the alarm? Why doesn't John jump up? You know, the, has anyone here ever played the game Mafia? You know, I'm the sheriff. It's Judas. Get him. You know, dogpile him. Um, I think one reason is there's a lot of things John still doesn't know. He still doesn't know what betray means. He doesn't know when exactly he's going to do it or what exactly he's going to do. And I think Jesus is pretty well in command of the dinner at this point. So I think John, and I would argue correctly, probably realizes if Jesus wants to stop this, he can. So I don't know, maybe Peter would have done that if he'd been the one who knew, but John doesn't, and I think he's right. But it's kind of one of those things you wonder about. Well, why didn't he say something right away? And at this point, even then, the other disciples don't get it. No one at the meal understood why Jesus said to him, since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the feast. So remember, Passover isn't over once they have the Passover meals. It blends right into the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So there are going to be more meals to come the rest of the week or to give something to the poor. So one of the other traditions that's developed is that you give out money to poor people the night of Passover. So there's supposedly beggars are gathering around Jerusalem at the gate and at other points to get money from people. So they think, oh, maybe Judas is being sent out to give money to the poor. They still don't get it. And then we're told as soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. And that's literally true. Uh, once you are into the Passover meal, it's nighttime. It's eaten at night. But I think it has spiritual significance in the Gospel of John. John has talked about how at the end of Jesus' teaching, he talks about you'll only have the light with you for a little while. And so in a public sense, that is now true. Jesus has ended his public ministry outside of this room. It's now night, spiritual darkness, um, 
the forces opposed to God are in control, Judas is choosing to leave the light and go into the night. He's making an irrevocable choice at that point. He's committing, I'm team night, I'm leaving team light. Okay? And so everyone outside that room is now in this darkness. The light that Jesus provided during his earthly ministry has gone away. And, you know, there's eventually going to be the little thousand points of light that in a small way carry that on. But we're about to enter a time of darkness. Okay? Questions, comments, concerns? When you see Jesus say what you're going to do, do quickly after seeing his internet. Similar to the accuser tempter meeting before in the story of Job, or like, since Jesus is in control, Satan's in him, go do what you're going to do. Satan entering anyone else, is Jesus in some way, shape, or form, or God saying, go do what you're going to do. How far could that be carried out? Oh, I think it's really hard to know how far to carry it out. I do think it is very similar to what you mentioned the, at the beginning of Job, where we have Satan getting permission. So I think God is always sovereign, and that includes Satan's activities. So Satan can't do anything unless God somehow chooses to allow it to happen as part of his divine plan for creation. Um, and I think what Judas does is this weird conglomeration of his choices. I mean, he has to physically choose to get up and walk out of the room. I don't think Jesus makes him do that. I don't think Satan literally makes him do that. So it's their wills working in concert. Um, And I think that's kind of the way everything happens. It's always divine sovereignty is always an element in anything that happens. Um, But it's really hard to know um, how satanic influence works today and what the limits are, are, and I wouldn't try and build out a whole theology of that based on this one verse. Because this really is sort of special circumstances. It's hard to draw general lessons from it. But good question. Anything else? Yeah. Yeah. Um, regarding the phrase, uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved, perhaps a good parallel is uh, when maybe we're describing a group of people and we're in that group and we say, and yours truly. Just, you know, we don't hammer and name ourselves, but we uh, indicate that we're there. Yep, I agree. That's a good way of thinking of it. Anything else? All right. Thanks, guys. That's the Last Supper.